0: There was a book written in the 50s that was a seminal work, and then you'll find a couple books like it today, more recent books, uh, really diving into a very strange subject, and and the subject was biblical humor. It's not really a subject that many people had, had really plumbed the depths of, but as people began to kind of lean into this... Um, It's fascinating kind of what emerged, so if you want to get a more recent book, Earl Palmer's, I think it's The Humor of Jesus, um, is a fascinating little book. Earl Palmer was the the pastor for a long time at First Presbyterian in Berkeley um, and an avid C.S. Lewis uh, um, writer, speaker, scholar. Uh, But So his book I think is called The Humor of Jesus. But as they began to press into it, they began to realize by understanding the humor language of the Bible that the Bible's filled with a lot more humor than what we would have kind of normally thought or seen or believed, to be true. Part of that is um, because you have to understand the language of a, of a culture to be able to understand their humor. So every generation, every culture has a characteristic way that they do humor. So for my parents' generation, it was, it was Steve Martin, right? Like it was kind of slapstick, and it was a bit cornball. Even che- Chevy Chase, who I loved, like when I was growing up, like is the same way, a, a bit um, theatrical, if you will. And then my generation comes along and you we kind of looked at that as a bit contrived or a bit forced. And all of a sudden Adam Sandler was like the funny version, you know, just brash and bold and saying things that you wouldn't expect and making you laugh. And that kind of became the style of my generation. And then if you look at box office sales, that's not the style anymore. Like it's moved off from Adam Sandler and, and there would be different people. Um, right now it would be um, Megan McCarthy on Saturday Night Live, right? Like, but there's, there's different styles or language for humor. And the same is true in biblical times. And the language for humor in biblical times... Uh, had to do with exaggeration and hyperbole, and so a lot of people even look at something that I always took as a very serious passage in Jeremiah chapter twelve. So, if, if you quickly look there, it's it's a famous passage, but it looks so serious to us when we read what God says to the prophet Jeremiah as Jeremiah is complaining about how, how hard life is, and God says to him, "I'm using a newer Bible and." All these pages stick together. So Jeremiah complains to God. God answers in verse 5, Jeremiah 12, 5, and he says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Now, if you stumble in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? And then he goes on to basically talk to him. But this idea is like no man can run with horses. That's not true. God actually isn't going to rewire uh, Jeremiah's legs so that he can compete with horses. What, what God is doing here is saying something like, hey, look, if the difficulty of your wrestling with what you're doing with, with now, if, if kind of running with men is too much for you, then what the heck are you going to do when I actually amp it up and redline it for you, and it's gonna feel like you're running with horses. Like, so if you can't run with men, how in the world are you gonna run with horses? So you use the extreme, the exaggeration of horses to kind of point out the absurdity and bring a little bit of lightheartedness to it in the midst of a serious note. If you can't run with men, how are you gonna run with horses? Bad news, you're gonna to have to run with horses. Good news, I'm the one that's telling you that whatever I'm calling you to, you're going to have the strength to be able to do, right? Embedded in that, all sorts of different messages. This is one of the passages that people will point to. There's a lot in Isaiah. But when you get to Jesus, you actually see a lot of these things. So uh, Matthew 23, um, we see uh, the woes. As Jesus is blasting the Pharisees, he's Woe to you the teachers of the law and the Pharisees you hypocrites Matthew 23 verse 23 You give a tenth of your spices mint dill and cumin but you've neglected the more important matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former you've got the religious stuff excuse me down well like the, the behaviors that make you look like a good Christian. You've got that down well, but you're actually not doing what a Christian should be doing, what a religious person should be doing. You, you should have done the bigger parts, and, and then you should have thrown these easier parts in of, by the way, like, but, but this is where your focus should have been, right? This is the big thing, the main thing, and here you are majoring on the minors, and then Jesus says this, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat." But swallow a camel. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Um, there's more beneath this. I can on the screen, you've got this from the Talmud, which is the sayings kind of that the Pharisees would ascribe to. "He that kills a flea on the Sabbath uh, is as guilty as if, as if he killed a camel." This idea of putting the smallest, unclean animal. If you go back to the Levitical law, um, the gnat was an unclean animal. There was a plague of gnats, by the way, the pestilence back in Egypt. But the gnat is an unclean animal. If it dies in your drink, it makes your drink unclean. The camel is also, it's the largest example of an unclean animal. And so on the Sabbath, picture it now, you've got Pharisees that are sitting around their their water or probably uh, their wine, which was a cleaner drink because um, it was fermented and, and you wouldn't get giardia or, or whatever bugs, So probably around their wine or their water, but with with some kind of a cloth or some something that's going on so that they're keeping any gnats from drowning in it, which would make the whole drink unclean. They couldn't drink it. So in Bend, Oregon, in the summer, if you get a gnat in your wine, you know, you, you you dig at it for a while, but you don't throw the wine out, right? For the Pharisees... The, the wine goes bad because when an unclean thing touches water, a water source, it pollutes that thing. So here they are on the Sabbath and, and during the week trying to strain out gnats. And, and Jesus is saying, and then the same t- at the same time, you've got a knife and a fork in, in your hands and you're eating a camel like, do you not see the absurdity of the little thing you're doing here when you, you miss the fact that you are so absurdly unclean because your religion is, is actually abhorrent to God? It's th- that you have so little love for others that everything you're doing is now unclean. You're eating a camel. So... You're straining out a that. I mean, can, can you just see Jesus as a, the kind of guy that little children would want to hang out with and that we would want to hang out with, right? Talking to bad religious people. Like, bad religious people deserve to be made fun of. You know what I'm saying? Like, they call for humor. You can. That's why, for a long time, Benny Hinn, I knew just as many people that would watch it to laugh as that would watch it for Actually, you know, because they're watching TBN, like it calls for humor. So Jesus is basically saying, "You guys have it completely backwards. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel." Um, other ones, Jesus is talking about the rich people and say, "Look, it's 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 really hard for the rich to be saved because they're so self-sufficient." They have that center of gravity thing going again where it's really hard for them to let go of, of controlling things around their own life and for their own people and their own satisfaction. It's really hard for the rich to be saved. In fact, it'd be easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it would for the rich to be saved. Now, there's all sorts of things on what's the eye of the needle. Is it a gate that camels used to have to crawl through? Is it actually a needle? What is it? It doesn't really matter. The whole point is the exaggeration, the hyperbole that Jesus is bringing is saying, you want to know what it's like? It's easier for a camel to go through through the eye of a needle. That's how silly it is. And and you hear it and you're like, oh yeah, I, I get that. And your face does that. I mean, you might not fall on the ground laughing, but your face brightens up. You're like, I get the point. I get the point you're making. Um, listen to this one, and it's going to be different than the way you've heard it before. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus um, has been talking to the, the priests about his death and, and how he's going to rise again. Um, and he's, he's basically telling folks the narrative, the story, that I have to suffer. I have to die. I have to be raised again. And the disciples are like, we don't get it. Like, whatever happened to celebration? <laughs> whatever happened to victory? <laughs> whatever happened to, like, that we thought things were just going to get better and better. And, and you, what you're saying it sounds like a catastrophe. What you're saying here, Jesus. So Peter pulls Jesus aside. And he says, never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he says to his disciples, look, whoever wants to, et cetera, et cetera, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. If you seek your life, you'll lose it. But here's the thing. I always heard that said in a harsh way. Get behind me, Satan, always was like, dang, Jesus just, he just wheeled around on Peter. Like, if I had been one of the disciples, I would have been like, ooh, Peter? Um, if I have been one of the disciples, I probably would have been Peter, which, you know, made me think like, oh, dang. Um, I need to hide from Jesus in my prayer time because I know there's stuff he's going to yell at me for. Um, I always heard this taught in such a harsh way that I've never actually thought about it as one of those verses that shows us a pattern of life. Jesus is our teacher. He's, he, we, we are to follow and emulate what Jesus did. In some sense, I should be able to picture myself turning to, uh, I was gonna say Peter, Um, but Pete's on staff Um, I should be able to see myself turning to somebody uh, in a moment when I realize they they don't have in mind the things of God and say get behind me Satan like look you're pulling me off track here you're trying to bring the conversation where it's not supposed to go like I ought to be able to envision myself doing what Jesus did because we're called to do what Jesus did But I've never imagined it with this passage because why? I have a paradigm for seeing this that is so abnormal and harsh that I leave it as one of those things that like Jesus rose from the dead because he's he's God and he rebuked Peter because he's God. We can copy him and everything else. I don't know that we can copy him in that. And actually when you understand exaggeration, there's a different way to read this. Um, What if... Instead of thundering at Peter, uh, you know the austere Jesus in the Jesus movies? Get behind me in the, the camera angle, shooting up. So Jesus is looking down and he's stern and he, he's got a finger pointing and his eyes are wild like, Get behind me, Satan. And everyone crouches and then he leaves it there for a while. And then he goes on to, in a demonstrative way, say, you know, unless you, you know, basically pick up your cross, and unless you are a masochist and a sadist and, and unless you like want to, to only beat yourself every day as you go through life, then you can have no part of me. You know, um What if Jesus, if we pictured it differently, was was actually wrestling with the difficulty of life and that he's actually gonna have to die and it's a bit hard and a bit lonely and he's trying to have that conversation and one of his well-meaning friends is trying to encourage him. Like, no way, Jesus, no, no, I'm with you. We'll prevent that. I'll fight by your side. Like, uh, we'll go down together. Like, I'm not gonna leave you alone. I'm not gonna, we, we care about you. And Jesus like, dude, get behind me, Satan. Like, don't you get it, Peter? This is where God's taking me. Like, I—I don't you think I wouldn't want to fight this and, and get away from this? I appreciate that you're standing with me. Like, I really do, but don't you realize that's the narrative of the deceiver? Um, she's not here this morning, um, so I'll tell it. I had nothing to do with this sermon. But I was in the shower this morning, Tamara's doing stuff, and we were having a conversation. I was like, man, I'm just trying to figure this thing out. And and she goes, Oh hey, you know, it's like this thing. And she starts like totally on a different topic. You need to whatever. And I was just like, I was like, you're you're totally pulling me off track. You're like deceiving me right now. I actually used that word. You know, <laughs> in a total jokey spouse kind of way. And then as like I was finishing my shower, I was like oh my gosh, I just did it. I did what Jesus did. I am being Jesus right now. I am humorously setting my wife straight. I'm just kidding. Um, You're you're laughing because it's exaggeration. It's hyperbole. I think there's something lost in not understanding this part of Scripture and what what the message is about today is about straight talk which the Bible is all about that we would be honest and transparent and straightforward with each other straight talk matter of fact that we wouldn't hide and play games and gossip and pass along hearsay but that we would be real with each other direct with each other and I think we lose our ability to do that because we don't see how natural it is we don't see how natural it is. When we think that Jesus is just blasting Peter, we think that that's his character. I mean, we really do. And here's, here's what I kind of would submit to you. I think in America, we are incredibly... Is, is Kip in here? No? That was just a test of, of, of the Kip system. Um, <laughs> Um, it's saying I'm over by 10 minutes and I haven't even gotten to the main scripture. I don't think this clock's right. I'm just trying to check. And that's what's going on. Straight talk. Um, hey, we're punitive in the States. We have 5% of the world's population and we have 25% of its inmates. 25% of the incarcerated people in the world are incarcerated in the United States. We are a punitive people. We think in terms of punishment. In fact, half the time I think we want it. I think we've been patterned this way by an austere Protestant Christianity that's legalistic. God is a judge and we judge because he first judged us. Exaggeration hyperbole again, you see? Um, And because of that, we come to what I think is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture. Matthew 28. So turn to Matthew 28. I'm sorry. Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 18. I was always taught this as the church discipline passage of Scripture. I was taught for 15 years when I became a Christian that... When you look for a church, you should look I, honest to God, and I know some of you were taught the same thing. You should look for a church that's got good theology, that preaches from the Bible and does church discipline. Anyone want to raise their hand on that? that church discipline was actually put in in the top three things you're supposed to look for to know if a church is actually following Scripture or not. Which is, let me just stop. The absurdity of giving three reasons for picking a a Jesus-centered church and that love doesn't show up in that list, but judgment does. The absurdity of it. I I am a recovering bad Christian from a bad Christian culture. There are people that are so much further than me that are so much better teachers because I I started my journey from a really crazy place. C.S. Lewis said, "Of uh, of, "Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst." And I think, in a lot of ways, I started my faith journey in the bad man religious circle where we would ask that you do church discipline and do it well without ever thinking about love. I remember being in churches when somebody would have a moral failure and the conversation around the lunch table was actually like, oh good. Now we get to see if this church actually is faithful with church discipline. I know I'm not the only one. That that when someone failed morally and everyone already knew about it, Public doesn't just mean that it's happening public. Public means the public knows. And, and everyone already knows about it, but we're going, oh boy. They better get on stage. They better put them through the ringer. They better pull a confession out of them. Those people better repent. Like, and if they don't make that person do that, then I'm going to know that they don't really follow Christ. I'm dead serious. That that all of a sudden became a, like, a, a like let's all, I'm going to say something here, and it's extreme and hyperbole, and it's not meant to be funny. It's meant to, like, make you, have you ever seen the pictures of lynchings? There's something really sick we can do as the herd, as the crowd, as the people that hide in in kind of the background and want to see people get punished, as long as it's the other person. Um, This passage, there's a picture you can put on the screen. Um, You're not going to be able to read it. It's meant to be uh, for effect. This is from Bible Gateway. You, You see that at the top, there's a title to the section, The Parable of the Lost Sheep. Jesus says, "Hey, if you have hundred sheep, but ninety-nine of them are safe and one's lost, guess what you do? You leave the ninety-nine and you go look for the one." I've got four dollars. If 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 I'm out in a busy crowd and and I start counting heads and I've got three, I don't go, "Whoo, good, I got three quarters. We're doing pretty good here." I'm uh, I'm gonna go get a, a gelato. You know, I'm, uh, numbers are in my favor. Um, we're three-quarters of the way there. I'm going to freak the hell out because one of my daughters is missing. And I don't trust no one out there in the public. I'm a protective dad. Don't think your sons are going to date my daughters. <laughs> my daughters have already been told. That won't happen until they're in their 30s. <laughs> um Jesus is talking about finding lost sheep here. The middle section, we want to put sinners up on stage. Next section, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, another, another thing where Jesus is saying, the unmerciful servant. He's asked by Peter, How many times do I forgive? And when someone sins against me and Jesus says, well, the first question is, did you put them on stage and embarrass them and humiliate them? If you've already done that, then then you can forgive them at least 70 times seven. Jesus is coming at it with a grace thing. He says, look, someone sins against you. Man, grace, grace, 70 times seven. Like it never runs out. You keep taking them back. You keep going and being long suffering with it well Jesus I might get taken advantage of and Jesus says I know someone that gets taken advantage of by people sinning and keeps extending grace every day that being Jesus of course right Um, and then he goes on and says "This, this guy owed money and he couldn't pay it, so he comes and like, throws himself on the mercy, and the guy forgives the debt. And so now the guy that owed a lot of money is, is, has been forgiven. And so he walks out into the neighborhood, and instead of going, man, the birds are chirping, the sun is bright, isn't it a beautiful day? What a wonderful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be mine? Couldn't you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Like, he walks out, and he sees a dude, Jarell, you owe me five bucks. You don't have the five bucks? You know what? They have a debtor's prison for people like you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to the debtor's prison because that's where you belong, Jarrell. Like you owe me five bucks. You can't just not pay me back my five bucks. And Jesus is like, do you not see the absurdity of this? I didn't call you to be judgers of men. I called you to be fishers of men. I didn't call you to be against people. I called you to be for people. I called you to be about unity. I called you to try and edify. I called you to have grace. The love of Christ compels us to love others. And if we don't understand that Jesus loves us, there's nothing going to be fueling our love. And little by little, when we think that Jesus is harsh with us, get behind me, Ken. Ken, you failed me today, Ken. Ken, you made a mockery of my grace today, Ken. Ken, I hate you. I'm disappointed with you. Why do you always do that when I think that's the Jesus that I worship? I look at you and I'm, I'm bitter. Why do you guys always let me down? Why aren't you better people? How come you're doing that sin? I don't do that sin. How come you do that sin and you've got more money than me? Jesus should take that money away from you and give it to me, I deserve it more. I'm in ministry. I'm a good person, even though I think Jesus hates me. And I'm filled with bitterness and rage. I, I, I wonder what's really going on in our hearts. That we come to this passage in between grace and grace, and we sandwich it with judgment. You know a real church by how they're going to discipline someone. If a brother or sister sins, go out and point out their fault just between the two of you. I don't think we ever do discipline, right? Because I don't think church leaders ever ask somebody that comes to them to report a problem, whether they've actually gone to that person first before they talk to other people about it. Well, but pastor, I needed to get people to help pray about it with me. we as churches never even get it right because I don't think we ever actually push back on people and say what the heck are you doing telling me one side of a story that's going to poison my mind to somebody else if you haven't even gone and talked to them straight talk direct talk matter of fact talk talk that seeks to unify and and bridge and forgive and be in a healthy place why are you pursuing bringing me into an unhealthy saga or drama reality tv just between the two of you says jesus read letters from christ himself if they listen to you you have won over your brother isn't that the whole point of these three sections the sheep the forgiveness isn't the whole section that we win people over and that we find ourselves together with others. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, be mature. Take one or two others along with you so that every, may, uh, quote unquote, so that every matter may be established by the testimony Of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen to you, tell it to the church, meaning really the church leaders. And if they refuse to listen to the church that's coming along imploring them, then treat them as they've chosen their own way, a way of division, a way of breaking fellowship, and you step back. You've chosen to walk away, step back. When people chose to walk away from Jesus, when Jesus healed people and they chose not to come back, you don't have to go grab them, go find some dog and, and rub their face in it or throw them in jail because we love to incarcerate. You, it's sad and you grieve. Tam and I are dealing with this right now with some, some friendships and you grieve and, and you, you let it go and you go to God and say, God, it hurts when you open up your heart to people and you love them and they become family and then something happens. God, that hurts. Can you help teach us in that? Can you help give us grace so that we don't say errant words? Can you help us not be poisoned in our heart but to continue to trust and to continue to love, and to continue to want to build up, and that the next time someone does something against us, that we don't read this narrative into it and go, oh, here it goes again, I know where this goes, and then we go off and tell everyone all the bad thoughts and motives and intentions of this person, rather than actually going to them and saying, hey, listen, this is what you said? Is that, is that what you meant to say? Um... Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I say to you that if two of you on earth agree about anything that that you ask for, it will be given by the Father in heaven in my name. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Jesus says you should tell to two or three, and he says if two or three are there, Jesus will be there too. Jesus, the, the, the one of love and grace and unity and straightforward talk, Right, not not the one that wants to divide but the one that wants to to heal in a truthful way, loving way he says two or three, why? he's pointing back to Deuteronomy we've got the verse on the screen here, you can read it but this is the Levitical law about trials a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any, any wrong in connection with any offense think about it if only one witness was all it took Man, when I was eight years old, I would have gotten a lot of people locked up. My teachers, (laughs) my Sunday school teachers, anyone I didn't like, I would have just said something, got them locked up. If you ever wanted to know how the Salem witch trials happened, it's a bunch of young people that just would say things, and it was taken on the word of the one witness. And crazy stuff happened, chaos happens. Only on the evidence. You don't have DNA. You don't have fingerprints. You got to establish it with two witnesses or three witnesses if you're actually going to entertain it as a real thing. Jesus is saying when you care about the unity of the church, when you care about going into the deep stuff and trying to bring healing to broken relationships, Jesus is saying, I will be right there with you. I'll be with you. What Jesus is not saying is that wherever two or three Christians are, that's church. Because that's what I've heard this verse mean more than anything else. I don't go to church because where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there also. And my answer to that is, when I'm all by myself in the woods, the Holy Spirit is also with me. Like I, I don't need two or three people to be in communion with God. I do need two or three people to establish things in a mature way, wise way, that builds up community. So Jesus is saying to us, don't neglect corporate church and, and, and just do, hey, I got a couple buddies, I'm just going to call that church. Or my family's just going to stay at home and have brunch. And we're going to do that most of the year. Every once in a while, we'll venture into a church. But we don't really need to go to those places because when our family gathers, that's church. Because where two or three are gathered together in his name. And unless your family's working on its junk over brunch on Sunday, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Does that make sense? 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, um, you might have it memorized if you do a lot of weddings, like if you're a wedding photographer, you probably have this memorized. Um, it's at every wedding because it's, it's great for weddings. Um, I preach on it at weddings. Um, you're going to be familiar with this, but love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, and then we're going to put some of it on the screen here. Does not dishonor others. We think of this too romantically sometimes. I I think this should be about me and you, me and you, and me and you, and me and you. We don't dishonor each other. It's really easy to dishonor people. It doesn't dishonor us, it's not self seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. You want to know in other translations, it, love does not delight in unrighteousness. Other translations still, the Greek here, is adik, adikia. I, we've talked about it before. The word for justice is dikaiosune. The variants of that word are just or righteous, meaning the same thing. The Greek here is that love does not delight in injustice, but rejoices with the truth. Love and justice A lot to say about each other. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. My Bible says uh, love never fails, which is poetic. The Greek actually says love never ends. Never ends. Church discipline, it's not like, uh, punishment. I can feel good about my church now. We know how to judge people. Um... And we're done with it. Like, that's not it. Love never ends. It continues to plead with God that God would bring somebody back or that relationships would be restored. We continue to plead. It never ends. You want to find a good church? You show me a church where the number one thing is, in Christ's name, we understand that love never ends. And when we get it wrong, we fight for it to come back to the center. And that fight never stops. Love never ends. But the, point, uh, the part that I really want to point us to, and, and we'll close here, is that love always hopes. Love always hopes. I've started to break it down in my own mind when I hear gossip or when I catch myself doing the same. Is that we make assumptions of somebody else. I know what you did to me. I'm making an assumption that I know what you intended in it, one assumption, that you would actually stand by that intention. Um, So if I actually said, hey, look, you did this, and you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. You could change that quick, blink of an eye. But I'm assuming that I know your intention. I'm assuming that your intention is full-baked and that you wouldn't soften if I put it in front of you. I'm filling in a whole lot of the uh, blanks about your tone. And your sinister quality to it. Then I start going, I know that person's talking to other people. I know this is a conspiracy that's coming against me. Still haven't talked to you. Um, I've seen this before, so I know where this is going. I better go talk to some people. There's no hope in that. Do you understand what I'm saying here? If I have hope, if I'm filled with hope, if, if love is hope, then when something goes wrong, I look at you and I think to myself, we can still fix this. If I just come to you, if I just come humble, if I just come with open hands, if I just say, maybe I did something wrong I'm not aware of, but this was said or this happened. D- did I miss something? Did you intend it that way? Did I hear it wrong? If, if I come to that person, maybe, They'll change or I'll learn something that softens it. I have hope in you. I have hope in Christ. I have hope in the Holy Spirit that things aren't the way they appear. And so I press in. And even if you come back at me strong and I go, whoa, it's worse than I thought. I'm afraid. This could go really bad for me. This could go really bad for my family. I'm still going to respond in love. I hope. I hope that this relationship could be restored. I hope that this won't go bad. I hope that God could could be glorified in this. I hope that as other mature Christians get involved, that somehow the, the wisdom of God in the church community, that we come together and that none of us do this alone, but we're all needed at different times, right? That somehow the wisdom of God in the church would be proven and he would get the glory. I hope for that. So I continue to respond in love. When the slander starts coming, I respond with, well, I know that person, and you know what? Maybe there's something going on in their life. Maybe they've misunderstood something. Maybe I've wronged them, but you know what? I know they're not 100% bad, even if I feel like what's coming against me is the worst part of them. I know that they still love their kids. I know that their parents still love them. I know that they have friends that they would die for. This person is not evil. I'm gonna respond in love, believing that something can happen, because love hopes, Love hopes. When I, when I post on Facebook, I, th- I think there needs to be more tears and more hope. And if there's not tears and if there's not hope, I would venture to say the love will grow cold quickly and it will come to an end. And what I say to people, how I interact, is going to begin to tilt toward What? judgment because man I love to judge and man I love incarceration and man the law feels really really nice when it's in my hands working against my enemies and so listen to me now in your marriage talk to each other your families talk to each other Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Ben read it earlier out of Romans. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Don't play games. Don't start drama. Don't be in cliques. Uh, Don't pass along hearsay. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written it's his to venge, not ours, says the Lord. And as a church family, uh, we need to learn to train our tongues for justice and righteousness. And I think even more than that, to be honest with you, we need to train what we're willing to abide in our presence. We need to train ourselves to be like Jesus. If we say it a little bit lightheartedly or at least in a friendly way, Whoa, 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 slow down. You're saying a lot of crazy things about Joe or Susie. Are you sure that's where you want to take this conversation? Have you talked to them? You don't have to throw out the S word, call them Satan, but you can maybe do the same thing and just say, whoa, 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 whoa. Where are we going here? And where is this going to take us? Is it going to take us to a position of unity or is it going to break the fabric of the church, the family of God? We need to begin to be disciplined with what we're willing to abide in our presence. Matthew 18 wasn't about punitive measures against sinning people in church. It was practical steps to help you and I figure out how to bring people back together so that we could win over our brother and find unity in the church. Father, I pray for us, we have this wonderful opportunity to love because you first loved us. I pray that you would fill us with the spirit of love. I pray that you would give us the joy of forgiveness Of not repaying wrong for wrong, but repaying wrong with good, of blessing those who curse us, of praying for our enemies, of loving our enemies, that somehow in doing that, we would be training our hearts to be filled with all good things, to know what your heart is filled with, to be with you and how you see the world, that, that we would somehow be filled with that kind of fruit. That we wouldn't pattern our hearts to be filled with the law or with judgment. That we wouldn't be the ones going around actually ripping things apart in Jesus' name. I pray that there would be churches in America that would pride themselves on love in Jesus' name. I pray that you'd give us the eyes to see scripture uh, as written back in the New Testament reflecting your heart and that we would be able to take and shape our church accordingly. Not that we'll get it perfect, not that we can be puffed up, not that we can be better than, but because that's our faith journey and we delight in it. So we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you for the, the breath in our lungs. We Thank you for the relationships that are on the left and the right and front and behind us. We thank you for this city with all its flaws, but that we get to live, uh, live in it get to love it. We get to call it ours. We get to dream about the faith things we can do that might make a difference in this world. In Jesus' name.